Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 55. We're going to be in the late 1700s, and we're back over the pond to the United Kingdom. And you might have figured out by now that if it's not an episode about poison, it quite possibly could be an episode about a witch. Apparently, those are my two favorite topics. And today is another really interesting episode because we are going to talk about Mary Bateman, the Yorkshire witch. Throughout the darkest period of history, there exist stories of persecution and witches. Thousands of women have faced accusations of sorcery, demonic liaison, shape-shifting, inflicting disease, and more. Of course, the majority of the accused were not guilty of the charges that were leveled against them. But today, we're going to cover the story of one who was guilty, Mary Bateman, the Yorkshire witch, whose career of deception and murder would ultimately lead to her execution. Just as a bit of historical context, witchcraft was decriminalized and had become less common after the Witchcraft Act of 1735. Yes, there were still occasional witch hunts, but they were usually directed towards individuals who worshipped Satan. In this time period, people could confidently sell charms and predict fortunes, thanks to the Witchcraft Act. And another aside on where a lot of the source material comes from, the majority of information about Mary's life can be found in The Extraordinary Life and Character of Mary Bateman, a book that was released shortly after her trial and subsequent execution. Although the book is generally considered reliable, We might need to question some of its assertions because it was written as a way to make money following a highly publicized case. And with that out of the way, we can start at the very beginning. Around 1768, Mary Harker was born to a farmer in North Yorkshire. Despite having a reasonably pleasant upbringing, she fell in love with stealing and became an expert thief by the time she was only 12 years old. It was then she also was forced into joining domestic service. She was described as having a knavish and vicious disposition in an 1811 biography. Due to her love of stealing, Mary would lose a number of jobs before she earned a reputation for dishonesty that really prevented her from ever being hired again in her area. Due to a serious lack of possibilities of employment in her hometown, Mary had to relocate to Leeds in the late 1780s and it was through a friend of her mother's that she was able to secure employment as a seamstress. But she wouldn't stay just a seamstress for very long. Mary would add witchcraft to her list of services and used fortune-telling to augment her meager revenue. In addition to serving as a fortune-teller for local servant girls, uh, this entailed making love potions and eliminating evil wishes for some of the locals as well as occasionally for their employers. And for four pieces of gold, Mary said she could fight off bad spirits. But Mary would quickly fall out of favor with the locals, so she learned she had to move on quickly. She was always able to attract a new clientele by moving between towns and finding people who were oblivious to her dishonest ways. Mary would live in Leeds for three years before she'd meet the wheelwright, John Bateman. It's unclear whether John knew Mary's reputation for being a witch and a thief. The two enjoyed a very quick relationship that lasted only three weeks before they'd be married in 1792. Marriage did not make Mary an honest woman. 
From what we can tell, John Bateman was an honest man, but Mary was unable to stop stealing. And again, the couple had to relocate frequently in order to avoid being found out and punished. Eventually, Mary would even con her husband. She pretended that his father was ill and made him leave Leeds to go and visit. She then paid off some of her more angry victims of her theft while he was away by selling John's clothing and furnishing. Having had enough of Mary's antics, John would leave to enlist in the military. And Mary would soon expand her skill set to include a new kind of deception. Constantly trying to improve her con, Mary would develop a series of characters who she said she could channel and connect and communicate with. These would include Mrs. Blythe, a psychic who operated via Mary and could read the stars and foretell the future in great detail, and Mrs. Moore, who could send someone into a screw-her-down situation using Mary as her go-between. And what that means is Mary would try to convince or incite someone to think that they were the target of malicious intent and that this person could be prevented if they were, quote, screwed down. Naturally, there would be a cost associated with dealing with debt collectors or husbands who were unfaithful to their spouse. One of Mary's more notorious schemes was in 1806. And Mary kept hens, just like a lot of people did back then. But she had a specific hen who was said to be laying eggs with messages announcing the arrival of Christ. When in actuality, Mary would write them herself on eggs by using vinegar to etch the messages into the shell before returning the eggs to the hen's house, giving the impression that they were always there. It was said that people paid one penny per view to see the eggs and that they traveled from all over. However, one cent was insufficient to continue, and a hen can only lay so many eggs. Even if her businesses were profitable overall, it appears that Mary had a drive to accomplish even more. So she would soon turn to murder. Mary's first foray into murder occurred when she began to target the Kitchen Sisters, two Quakers who lived above the Draper's store they owned. Mary had made herself at home by helping them out and growing to be a confidant and friend. These gullible women were enchanted by Mary, and in spite of their Quaker convictions, Mary was able to deceive them in the same way as she had everyone else. She read their fortunes, which Mrs. Blythe had provided, for a price of course. Mary would even obtain medication for one of the sisters when she fell ill. She concealed the fact that this medication was poisoned. After she died, her mother and surviving sister both fell ill and would pass away from the same horrible sickness, which Mary would inform anyone who would listen that it was the plague. All three women died quite quickly and in succession, and Mary again attributed all of the deaths to the plague and the villagers chose to remain silent, either out of fear of infection or maybe of Mary's wrath as well. Upon investigating the kitchen estate, creditors found that the house and the drapery store had been completely cleared out and that the account books had also vanished. However, at that point, no one considered blaming Mary. Mary went on to woo a new group of clients who were unfamiliar with her name as soon as she felt that her shine was beginning to wane. She went out of her way to help the sick and nervous, promising to provide the miracle solution to their issues. Mary was a seemingly pleasant and well-connected woman who was rarely without clients. 
and according to Curzon for Mental Floss, word of the seemingly nice and gifted Mary would spread to William and Rebecca Perigo, who lived in Bramley in the spring of 1806. Rebecca had a nervous condition and complained of a fluttering in her side, which she was informed was caused by an evil wish. Rebecca went to Mary for help, and Mary kindly consented to forward the matter to Miss Blythe. Mary said Miss Blythe had instructed her to stitch silk bags filled with guinea notes from the Perigos into Rebecca's bed corners, where they had to stay untouched for 18 months. Miss Blythe would also insist on receiving money for magical equipment, silver, and even a new bed for herself as she continued to work on Rebecca's case. She claimed to require all of these items for supernatural reasons. The couple complied with every demand, gave up their money, and at Miss Blythe's request, destroyed the letter so that evil spirits couldn't read it. The Paragos would then receive a terrifying note from the psychic predicting an impending mysterious illness. It read, My dear friends, I am sorry to tell you, you will take an illness in the month of May next, either to one or both, but I think both, but the works of God must have its course. Fortunately, Miss Blythe offered her help. Mary sent them with special powders to be mixed into puddings, which the pair was to consume with a special honey pot. According to instructions, when they got the powders, they were not to offer the magical food to anyone besides themselves, or summon a doctor, as this would only help to exacerbate the supernatural illness. What they didn't know at the time was that Mary had poisoned the food. The pair became ill almost immediately. William would subsequently say that a violent heat came out of his mouth, which was very sore, that his lips were black, and that he had a most violent pain in his head, 20 times worse than a common headache, and that everything appeared green to him. In addition, he experienced a violent complaint in his bowels. Rebecca would unfortunately die on May 24, 1807, but William would survive. He was left penniless and relied on Mrs. Blythe's potions for two more years, during which time she asked for more money and his wife's clothing. William did experience a decline in faith as the years went by. He couldn't help but wonder why Miss Blythe didn't seem to benefit much from his frequent presence and payments. And finally, he would undo the seams on the silk handbags that Mary had sewn onto Rebecca's mattress. But he didn't find any guinea notes. All he found was a little metal, some change, and waste paper. William finally would come to the realization that he had been duped. But William would do something about it. He set up a meeting with Mary and secretly brought along a police officer, and she'd be taken into custody. Following a search of her home in October 1808, it was revealed that everything that was given to Miss Blythe was actually inside Mary's home and she was accused of fraud and put under suspicion for murder. She was then taken to York Castle to await trial after being accused of Rebecca's murder. And on March 17, 1809, Mary's trial for the murder of Rebecca Perigo began. She relied only on one defense, deny, deny, deny. But witnesses of Mary's extortion began to come forward from all around Leeds, and it became clear that her crimes went much beyond what was first assumed. The sudden deaths of the kitchen six years ago took on a darker significance. It also became evident that Miss Moore and Miss Blythe did not exist. 
Mary's handwriting, in fact, was an exact match for Miss Blythe. But she didn't try to explain away the resemblance. A physician who examined the remains of the honey from the Paragos discovered a mercury sublimate that was corrosive. Additionally, tests on a bottle that Mary had shown contained a concoction of oatmeal, rum, and arsenic. During Mary's trial, William Wood described the pudding that he and his wife consumed, stating that he ate a single mouthful, but it was so nauseous that he could eat no more of it. His wife, however, swallowed three or four mouthfuls, but then was unable to eat more, and she carried the pudding into the cellar and was there seized with the most violent vomiting sessions. She experienced an insatiable thirst, and her tongue grew to such an extent that she could not shut her mouth. He said that his wife had insisted on not calling a doctor because Miss Blythe had told her that doing so would interfere with the healing process that was mystical. The trial lasted around 11 hours, and the jury found Mary guilty of fraud and Rebecca's murder. The penalty was death by hanging. Mary would attempt one final scam. She said that she was 22 weeks pregnant and therefore could not be executed by hanging just as her sentence was announced. But without delay, 12 married women would be sworn in as jurors to examine Mary. And it turns out she was lying. No surprise. Mary appeared before hangman William Mutton Curry on March 20, 1809. Thousands of people had gathered to see the final moments of the Yorkshire witch, as she would soon be called, when she mounted the new drop gallows. She was 40 years old when she died. Mary's body would be taken to the Leeds Infirmary, where visitors could view her remains for three pence. William Hay, a well-known surgeon, then dissected her over the course of the following three days. Students were allowed to pay to watch on the first day. Then local gentlemen could pay five guineas to watch on the second. And on the third day, women were finally permitted to attend. Thousands would watch her dissection, and those who wanted could buy a preserved and dried patch of her skin as a memento. Some even said that it would ward off evil. A few books were even bound with Mary's skin. At the time, Mary's death created a sensation, and the public greedily devoured facts through books and articles. Two years after her execution, a well-known book, The Extraordinary Life and Character of Mary Bateman, was released. And in his extraordinary popular delusions and the madness of crowds, Charles McKay referenced the incident involving the prophetic eggs as an illustration of how naive the public could be. And until 2015, Mary's skeleton was on public display at Leeds Thackeray Medical Museum. After that, it was then relocated to Leeds University. And that'll bring us to the end of the life and crimes of Mary Bateman, the Yorkshire witch. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.